I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week, we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on our daily lives, so that together, you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. Did you make it to Easter Vigil? We went as a family. All, all seven of our children uh, managed to make it all the way through the, the Easter Vigil. We uh, we welcomed 41 people at our parish into full communion with the Catholic Church, either through baptism or profession of faith. And it was glorious. And we, speaking of glorious, we sang the Gloria, uh, the, the lights, the bells, the incense. It was just a fantastic celebration. Then we woke up and we went to Easter morning because we are gluttons for the Mass. And that's what we're going to be talking about today and throughout the entire Easter season is the Mass, because the Mass is, in a very real way, uh, the Triduum celebrated all year long. We say it in one of the memorial acclamations. Uh, We proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. So by celebrating the Mass on a weekly basis or daily basis, if, if you have that available to you and you go to daily Mass, we are celebrating the Paschal Mystery the mystery of Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. And so it's a way that we keep not only Easter, but the whole of Holy Week with us all year long. Now, of course, we're celebrating Easter in a very particular way, in a special way for these 50 days of the season of Easter, uh, and and in an even more particular way for these first eight days ending tomorrow on Divine Mercy Sunday, which is the octave of Easter, uh, and so we we have these extended celebrations. In fact, if you have not been feasting for the whole of these eight days, then you need to make up for it. <laughs> go go get an extra dessert or uh, some extra thing because this is a time of celebration for us. Uh, and in as much as Lent is penitential and fasting, uh, this is its mirror, its mirror opposite, where we celebrate and where we feast. So uh, make sure that in some way you're keeping the feast in this Easter season. Uh, But one of the ways that we keep the feast is by keeping not just a physical feast, but a spiritual feast. Man does not live by sweet bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we ought to be uh, feeding ourselves with the rich foods of the Mass with the body and blood and soul and divinity of Jesus Christ, but also with the rich food of Scripture. So maybe during this season of Easter, as you uh, get ready for bed every night, maybe you read through the the readings of the day. I use the the app ibrevery.com, and it gives me all of the Mass readings as well as the Liturgy of the Hours. Um, but there's a number of different ways that you can go about getting your daily diet of Scripture Uh in a feasting capacity. Now, the reason we're going to talk about the Mass for these next several weeks is because we have, I think, these uh, our own expectations of what Mass is going to be. And as a parent, I have an expectation of what I'm going to get out of Mass and how much of my energy is going to be focused on making sure that the children uh, are able to participate to the level of their understanding. And so a lot of my attention is going to be directed at them, and so I'm not necessarily going to enter in as fully as I would like to. And so 
I really want to, for myself, and to invite you along on this journey, I want to look at the Mass with new eyes. Not with uh, the obligation, although it certainly is an obligation. Uh, It's a duty and a right for us to go and worship God. Uh, But beyond that, I I feel like so often we get wrapped up in our own parish and wrapped up in our idea of how Mass is celebrated here and maybe even in our own preferences of how Mass is celebrated here as opposed to there. And miss the spiritual realities that are waiting for us. And no matter how deeply you experience the spiritual realities of the Mass, there's still more depth waiting for us. In fact, I'm reminded uh, and call to mind very often this this story of St. Thomas Aquinas, who at the very end of his life, after he had written masterful treatises on on Scripture and on theology, uh, came to a place where he had a profound experience with the Eucharist where he said, all of my work up to this point is as straw. I can't write another word because what I have experienced is so far beyond anything that I have ever written. And so if a saint like St. Thomas Aquinas, who is one of the most brilliant minds of the church, if he can have a deeply profound experience with the Mass and with the Eucharist that changes his own understanding of, of the goodness of God and the depth of his theology, how much more then is Christ waiting to open up to us the depth of who he is? Uh, and that calls to mind another story of St. Augustine, who one day was walking by the, the seashore, and he sees this little boy uh, with a seashell going up to the shore and picking up some water and running away and then coming back and getting more. And, and he asked him, what, what are you trying to do, little boy? What are you doing? And he said, well, I'm trying to fill, fill up that hole that I dug over there. I'm trying to fill, fill it up with the sea and to take all the sea and put it in that hole. And Augustine chuckled to himself and thought, well, it's, you know, you're never, of course, never going to fit the fullness of the sea into your little hole. And as he was chuckling to himself about that with this little boy, the voice of the Holy Spirit came to him and said, And yet you're trying to understand the greatness of the Trinity with your small intellect. And so it is for us as we try to understand and to feast on the the realities that God gives us in the Mass, our own capacity for, for understanding God is so limited that we could never contain all that He is. And so it's our prayer during this Easter season that He would enlarge our intellect and enlarge our capacity to experience him uh, in the fullness of his glory through the Mass. It's going to be a great Easter season. We're going to start today by talking to K. Albert Little. He blogs over on the Pathios Catholic channel. The blog is The Cordial Catholic. We're going to talk a little bit about his conversion story and also about his experience with the Mass. It's going to be a great conversation. You come on over, join the ongoing conversation on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. There's much more to come right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. 
I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. And tomorrow we come into Divine Mercy Sunday. We're starting off, well, we're continuing this Easter season, which goes on for 50 days, as we uh, we don't stop the party, right? Christ is risen, and we carry that through with us this entire Easter season. But more than that, we carry it through with us throughout the whole year, because every week when we go to Mass, we proclaim and participate in the Paschal mystery, the, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be talking about the Mass uh, a little bit longer throughout these 40 day, 50 days of Easter. Uh, and recently I came across uh, an article, a blog post on, uh, on the Pathios Network, where I blog, uh, from someone who I've followed for some time. But this was, the, this was the thing that pushed it over the edge for us to have this conversation. We're talking today with Kay Albert Little, uh, just our neighbor to the north in Canada. Uh, he is a, a convert to the Catholic faith and was talking recently about uh, how our preferences really don't matter, something that we'll get to here in a little bit as we were talking about Mass. Uh, Albert, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So first, let's go back to the beginning of your story. Um, you came from an, a non-denominational evangelical background. Ex- describe for us what that means in, in your experience. Yeah, well, I guess uh, I wasn't raised that way, but kind of had a coming to Christ kind of moment when I was in high school where I was kind of stopped in my tracks and realized there must be something greater than myself. And uh wanted to kind of find out what that was. And I happened to have a best friend who was uh, kind of non-denominational, went to a small, uh, very small denominational church. There aren't many of them around. Um, So not really denominational, I guess. Um, Kind of Baptist maybe. And uh, got plugged in there and uh, did my faith journey there for a good almost 15 years or so. Uh, Just happened to be the tradition that I landed in. And... uh, went through a number of small churches as I went away to university and, you know, got married and started a family. Um, no churches with churches with any real affiliation. So non-denominational, uh, evangelical kind of churches, but, uh, yeah, really, uh, Christ centered churches with great people learn to love my Bible, learn to really study the scriptures. Right. And, uh, and that kind of stuff, you know, learn that Jesus is the every is the answer to every question in Sunday school. Right. Learn that pretty learn that pretty quickly, and uh, yeah, that was kind of the the faith tradition that I that I kind of grew up in. Um, you know, really really strong interest in theology and the history of the church and studying my Bible and uh, yeah. Now you mentioned that you were in this tradition when you when you got married. You went through all your your schooling and got married, and you're still in this tradition. Uh, what was your mutual journey like with your wife as you're coming into the church? What did that that dynamic look like? Because she would, of course, have to have her own journey as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was pretty interesting. I think in the sense that I mean, we were uh, we did kind of meet in this church together. That's where we met. Uh, got married in that church. The the pastor was a good friend of ours. All of our friends we had met and made were in that church. Actually, a lot of those friends, we uh, joined us in that church from other churches. They came to the church we were already at. So it was, it was a big deal um, for us uh, the first time in our relationship kind of to be on different pages 
spiritually and theologically uh, in that sense. Um, she joined the Catholic Church the year after I did. So it was it was a year of working it out and thinking and talking and lots of, as I was journeying towards the church, it was a very um, academic at first, a very uh, looking at the history of the church and the early church fathers and reading stories from other Catholic converts. And it was very much a book conversion in the beginning of my journey. Um, and that's a kind of very interior conversion. There wasn't a lot of exterior things I was doing other than uh, she knew I was reading all of these books, just book after book after book by these Catholic authors. Um, so, you know, I, I've heard this from other converts that maybe I waited a little too long to <laughs> to bring her into the journey. Oh, by but the way. We ended up, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I've I've heard that from that story from lots of people, um, lots lots of male converts. I think we tend to maybe rush into things and then have to do a bit of backpedaling. See, it took me ten years to come into the church, so there's no rushing into it for me whatsoever. <laughs> if you're just joining us, we're talking today with Kay Albert Little, and every convert has either that first catalyst moment that first piques our interest as we begin to look into the church. Or, and generally both, but, but take your pick here, or that tipping point moment where you know that there's nothing else to be done. You have to become Catholic. Uh, tell us the story of one of those. Oh, I've, I've, I've told the story recently, and I can't remember where it was, but I can remember the moment, a tipping point, uh, very clearly, because it was a strange situation. I was, um, it was the winter in Canada and I was outside in the backyard with a pot of soup in the snow. So we made this, made this soup and we had to, we had to put it in the blender to puree it. Um, but I wanted to cool it down first before I poured it into the plastic, uh, you know, blender. Mm -hmm. So I'm outside, you know, I think, I think in, in, I don't know, I threw some shoes on, no coat, nothing, just this pot of soup in the snow. And I was just thinking about looking, you know, you have a lot of time in Canada to cool soup, right? <laughs> so, so, so I'm just thinking about my journey at that point, and I kind of composed a whole article I was going to write in my head as the soup cooled uh, for this these five minutes in the snow. And it was just one of those moments where I thought, you know what? I've read this much. I've come this far. Um, I I can't turn back at this point. I know too much. You know, you get to a point where at least I did, where you you know so much about this faith you're entering into that you know too much. Mm -hmm. And if you if you were to stop there or say no 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 I'm not doing this, you, you'd be you'd be lying to yourself. You'd be lying to the, the journey to your faith. It's not you know you you've gone too far already. Right. And you can't turn back at that point. There's a point where when you don't know something, you're allowed to get off the hook. Right. Oh, I didn't know. I wasn't aware. Um, it, and you're not culpable necessarily for for not taking the step that that's the right step if you're completely unaware of it. However, there is that point that okay, now that I know and I have full cognition of this, now I now I have to make an affirmative, positive decision in one way or the other, and I'll be judged for that. I uh, that's I'm culpable for that. Well, and I think you're totally right about that, and I came across a Chesterton quote. I read a lot of Chesterton 
coming into the church. I mean, you, you, you just have to read a lot of Chesterton coming into the church. He's just fantastic. And I came across this quote too late in my journey where he talks about um, the Catholic church kind of being uh, a trap almost. I can't remember the words that he used, but that's how I interpreted it, that, you know, you get to a certain point once you're fair to the Catholic Church, he says, right? right? Once you read the Catholic Church through her documents, through what she says about herself, uh, you know, once you read the church for what the church is, not what others say about the church, but what the church says about itself, and you get to a point where this this trap has sprung. Right. And I remember I wrote this article and put a big mouse trap as the picture for the article. Um because that's how it felt to me. And and mousetrap is probably the wrong analogy to use because it's a good kind of trap. Right. Um, it's the best kind of trap you can imagine. But there comes a point when when you've come too far, you've read too much, you know too much, and that trap is sprung. And and that for me was that moment in the snow with the with the pot of soup cooling down, and I realized, you know what? I'm just I'm just going to go for it and and live this Catholic life. And uh that's when I began to embrace the the practice of Catholicism. So I began to pray the liturgy of the hours. I began to do these kind of Catholic type things that I had heard about, I had read about. And I think adoration was one of the things I was most excited to get to because I thought, you know, what if what the Catholics say about the Eucharist, if that's really going to be Jesus there on the altar and I can get that close to him and just be in his presence and I can I can pray and I can know that right there and that made so much sense to me that mm-hmm. that Christ would leave us that physical remnant I mean I came from a tradition that was very um you know didn't believe in the material in that right. sense right we didn't we didn't as non-denominational Christians uh, believe in the material of things, the importance of material things, of of what we call the sacraments now. But I didn't I didn't know about that as a as a non-denominational Christian. I had no idea. There's but almost to discover a, that was just amazing. There's almost a a sense of Gnosticism that that's kind of latent in some forms of Protestantism where you're like, okay, well, what's really important is the spiritual world and the physicality of the world really counts for nothing. And so we only have to really be concerned about uh, joining our, our soul to God's soul. And, and we don't have to worry about any of, uh, you know, if I die, this body's just a shell. I don't have to worry about any of the physicality of the world around me. It's all about waiting for Jesus to come back. Yeah, and that's what it, that's what it is in a sense for sure, definitely. Mm-hmm. So we take this path, and you read yourself into the church, like so many of the converts who were around us. Uh, but there comes a point where Catholicism then really begins to take a hold, not just of our intellect, but of our interior life. What was that point for you when when all of a sudden it ceased to be merely an intellectual exercise? Well, you know, it was kind of after that night with the soup, I, I began to embrace some of these Catholic practices that I had read about and and, and heard about. So uh, began to pray the Liturgy of the Hours. And, you know, I had come from a tradition where when I was in the church where I first began my journey in, in, in high school, we went so far as to say that we shouldn't be play, praying, sorry, we shouldn't be praying the Lord's Prayer because if that's all we pray, that's vain repetition. 
Mm. Right. We were pretty extreme in in our belief that we can't pray the same prayers. We can't. It's got to be spontaneous prayer. It has to be this from the heart or it's not it's not heartfelt. It's not meaningful unless you unless you are speaking right from your heart. Well, I, I came to learn pretty quickly as I began praying um, the liturgy of the hours that, you know, when when Paul talks about we, we can pray with these groanings of our spirit. Mm-hmm. Well, you know. That you know, and I know, you know, being a tired father of of children, there are some times when, when I I can't get words out to pray from from my heart because my heart is tired. My heart has nothing left to say. But here I discovered this amazing tradition of praying these written prayers from from the Psalms for the most part, that just just really expressed what I was what I was feeling inside. Right, mm-hmm. so. Here, here I was, just one little Catholic thing I started doing, um, just discovered the amazing beauty of, of that Catholic tradition. And then from there, I, I just went deeper and deeper into, into the faith. Um, and it was incredible. We're talking today with Kay Albert Little. He blogs over on the Pathios Catholic channel at The Cordial Catholic. We talked a little bit about his journey into the Catholic Church. When we come back, we're going to talk with him about his experience of the Mass as we're focusing on the Mass for the entirety of this Easter season. Join me over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. And we're talking this Easter season about the Mass. I know, I know, we didn't get to it in the last segment. We had to do some background work a little bit. Uh, but we're talking today with K. Albert Little. He blogs on the Pathios Catholic channel uh, under the blog The Cordial Catholic, which I think is kind of funny because you're Canadian. And I, I just think all Canadians are cordial. It's like ingrained, right? <laughs> you don't drive up here sometimes. <laughs> you know, I've, I, I admit I've never, I've never been, not yet, to Canada. But uh, next week I'm moving to uh, Seattle, so I'll be closer to Canada, just a different part than you're in. I'll see it from a distance, right? Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you wave. I'll wave because that's what you do to Canadians. You wave and very politely. <laughs> Uh, we're we're talking about the mass uh, during this this Easter season, and you recently wrote a, a piece on your blog called "The Liturgy Is Not Me: Why We Should All Worship Like Catholics." That's kind of a bold statement you've made there. So unpack it oh. a little bit. What do you? Uh, first of all, how much pushback did you get from that? <laughs> you know the the cordial Catholic moniker is is something I'm trying to grow into. Yeah. Uh, it's it's more of a goal than uh, or an aspiration than a title, I think. Um, but you know, I oh, as a convert, you know, sometimes I it's it's fun to stir the pot up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe fun is the wrong word. Maybe it's necessary to stir the pot up a little bit. I think uh, on both sides of the of the spectrum, I think so. I've written a few posts that were kind of geared towards my my evangelical uh, readers, um, and and some geared 
towards my Catholic readers. And this one kind of straddles both, I guess. And uh, yeah, it was meant to be a bit provocative. Um, but but I think there's a lot of truth in there, I think. It was kind of born out of a, of a thought I had, you know, way back when, um, probably 10 or more years ago when I was still uh, an evangelical Christian, just thinking about tradition and thinking about a Sunday morning worship service that we used to... Uh, that we used to attend and, and why that was structured the way it was structured. Why was there music at a certain time? And then why was there uh, an emphasis on the sermon, on the preaching? And then why was there communion just usually once a month? And, and why did we do the things that we did in that particular way? And, uh, and I couldn't figure it out back then. Mm -hmm. I, I w didn't know, didn't know why I, I, I realize now it's it's structured after the traditional way a mass was structured. It's it's changed, but right. uh, even back then I started thinking about well, you know, I know that Catholics have this thing called a mass, and I know that the mass has historical roots, um, and it's in and it's intentionally formatted a certain way, and and the way it's formatted is is very ancient, and it's based on on scripture from Revelation, and and these little things that I, little nuggets that I picked up as an evangelical still led me to kind of conclude even back then that I think Catholics had it right when it came to how they did worship. And so back, back 10 plus years ago, I put this blog post on a blog I had way back when about maybe we should all be worshiping like Catholics. And, and, you know, I, I guess, the conclusion is inevitable. Here I am now right. as a Catholic writing the same kind of blog post again, 10 years later. So it's kind of an interesting full circle there. You know, I was uh, a worship pastor for about 10 years in the Protestant church. And it was my study of, of the service of the liturgy of the way that we worship that eventually brought me into the Catholic church because I'm sitting here and all of our songs in the Protestant church were, uh, almost invocations of asking God to be with us because we didn't quite yet feel it. So uh, invoking God to be with us, and I'm sitting there going, okay, well, we're saying I worship you, Almighty God, but what really is worship? Because I can sit here with you and say I'm mowing the lawn, I'm mowing the lawn, and I'm not. I'm sitting here with you. I'm just talking about it. So how, when do we get beyond our our evocations of saying I am worshiping God, to actually get to that place of participating in the worship. And that, of course, takes you to the Old Testament. All throughout Scripture, worship is sacrifice, and that's something you bring up. So talk a little bit about uh, your understanding of this worship as sacrifice. Well, I think what I really loved was what I, what I stumbled upon, the idea of um, you know, the, the liturgy, the, the mass isn't something that we are, we are doing for ourselves. Like, so for example, as a non-denominational evangelical, we, we do what's called worship when we're singing these worship songs, um, as part of a Sunday morning service. And, you know, like you, like you said, it's kind of there to make us feel like God is amongst us. Mm -hmm. And I think more and more what I experienced near the tail end of my journey was a lot of the songs that we were singing were very were very much songs about me. I want to feel right. this. I want to experience this kind of thing. 
And that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, I think, um, back then. But we entered into this tradition in the Catholic liturgy where the liturgy is meant to transform us. So it's not, it's not that we are, are, are receiving some kind of reward for, for being there. You know, God, come, come with me, make me, help me to feel that you are there. No, no, no. We're, we're transforming ourselves through almost this kind of exercise mm-hmm. um, regime of being at the mass so that we are more transformed to, to, to God in, into Christ, right? It's this interesting kind of spiritual exercise, I think. And, and, and when you look at how, at, the, the roots of the mass, you know, you, you look at the old Testament, like you said, and you look at, at revelation, which pictures, you know, the saints in heaven and the altar and the incense. And, you know, when, when I went to ask myself, where does the roots of the Catholic church come from? Like the Catholic church, uh, sorry, the, the mass, the, the mass is the most biblical thing you can imagine, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I've heard it said by, by some liturgists before describing the mass that the Catholic church really just is trying to like decode or translate what we see in revelation on into earth. We're trying to emulate what we know worship in heaven looks like here on earth. And so by us participating in the mass, that's helping us to transform ourselves into what we will be doing in heaven. So it's a very, it's a, it's a very different approach, I think, to a Sunday morning worship service. Right. Um, you know what I mean? Well, and to take that thing that your, your liturgist friend said and kind of turn it on its head, um, the Catholic masses in a lot of ways, uh, patterned after the, the temple worship that we see in the old Testament. And in the, in the book of Hebrews chapter, uh, eight, verse five, it talks about those priests who served in the tabernacle and in the temple served in a shadow of heavenly worship. And so as we're doing that, it's almost like Revelation is a, is revealing to us what we're already doing in the Mass more than us necessarily patterning, our, patterning ourselves after that that revelation, that we are participating in that, that flow of worship that God ordained way back in the Old Testament, saying, this is how you come and you give me worship. This is how you, you offer sacrifice to me. And so now here we are, and the sacrifice we offer is no longer uh, animals. Now it's ourselves as a living sacrifice, and it is a, uh, a a representation of the sacrifice of Jesus as well. Yeah, and I think that's so important to think about. I mean, especially at this Easter season, uh, I would have heard a lot of discussion from Protestant theologians and in sermons around the idea of the of the veil being torn when when Christ was crucified and then raised from the dead the veil is torn so there's no more you know that was understood by me and and by a lot of of writers and theologians that I read as an evangelical to mean that okay the temple is done then. the veil is torn there's no more separation between God and man there's no more need for any of this and that's all done away with mm-hmm. well you know, if we look at the roots of of the early church, that that wasn't their understanding that suddenly the way that we worship God is radically changed, where now we can just have some guitars and drums and sing songs and have a long sermon and once a month do communion. There's that's nowhere in the early church, right? What what the early church looks like is a church that still looked very Jewish in the way they did their 
their their you know their worship. Mm-hmm. So like like you say, right? That that pattern continued, and it wasn't as if that that tearing of the veil was somehow meant to symbolize the end of this kind of format of worship that God established. That tearing of the veil just meant that we were that that sacrifice was done, mm-hmm. you know, but we're that much closer to God, right? We can approach the altar now with with arms outstretched because Christ is that perpetual sacrifice on the altar, right? That once for all sacrifice, you know? And it brings us even closer to this idea of Emmanuel, tying this back to, to our Christmas season, because Christmas and Easter are, uh, are tied up together. Um, God is with us. Now he's dwelling among his people. He says all throughout scripture, uh, you will be my people and I will be your God. And there's now this, this familial relationship that we have as well, because now through Christ we've been adopted. And so we have that easy access. And yet we still have to go into the temple. The veil's been torn, but we still have to go to the temple uh, to worship. Yeah, I mean, that... that that didn't that didn't change it wasn't like god radically changed you know this this even i mean this is there's so much in this topic right? right but this even spills over to the sacraments like you know the god of the old testament and even jesus in the new testament the gospel accounts is a very physical a very physical god he he likes physical signs mm-hmm. how he how he speaks to us is in our language a physical language you know and he knows how to speak to us best because he made us. He knows we're physical beings. So, you know, this, the same reason why we still worship the same way, that didn't change. The physical nature of the sacraments didn't change either. You know, God still speaks to us in physical ways, which, you know, when I did a little study as an evangelical coming into the church looking at, well, how did God speak to, you know, the prophets and the holy people in the Old Testament, you know, the the, the burning bush, like these mm-hmm. physical, physical things. I thought, well, wait a minute, like we have these physical sacraments now, but, uh, but of course that makes sense. That's how God always has, has communicated with us. So in the same way, the mass is, is there, is a, you know, a continuation, like you mm-hmm. say, of that way that God wants us to worship him. So are these physical sacraments, these things that he established to help nourish us and heal us and, and deliver grace to us. And that that realization for me, that connecting the way that God was in the Old Testament with the way that God was in the New Testament was enormous for me. Mm-hmm. Because we hear so often, well, this Old Testament God, this vengeful God, how do we reconcile him with the New Testament Jesus who is forgiving? And well, no, no, no. If you look, they are, they're the same they operate the same way. We just, as as Protestants, for, forgot, you know, how right. God operated. Yeah. So we're talking today with K. Albert Little. He blogs over at the Cordial Catholic over on the Pathios Catholic Channel. Go take a look at it. If you're having trouble finding it, don't worry. Go over to my social media, Facebook.com/slash/StepOutsideTheWalls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. We'll be linking to that article. Why we should all be worshiping like Catholics. Share it with your Protestant friends and stir up a little bit of trouble. Uh, There's much more to come right after this as we dive into Scripture and a reading from church history. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Today, we've been talking with Kay Albert Little. He's an evangelical convert to the faith. Uh, he lives in Canada with his wife and his two kids, and he blogs over on the Pathios Catholic channel at The Cordial Catholic. Uh, we'll put a link to that blog over on our social media. Join us over there, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle is at outside the walls. There's more to my conversation with Kay Albert Little, uh, available to those who support the show through Patreon. We talked for probably another 20 minutes after the interview is over and talked from everything to his experience raising his two young children and trying to instill the faith in them uh, to that thing that surprises most converts, the conversion after confirmation. Uh, and that thing that he found most intriguing and most spiritually transformational in his life uh, from the Catholic faith. Again, that segment is available to all of the Patreon supporters. Join their numbers by going over to Outside the Walls. Click that Patreon link. Uh, the Patreon supporters are the ones who help us continue to bring the show to you week in and week out. We couldn't do it without their support. Uh, for as little as $5 a month, you can join at the Franciscan level and uh, get extra content every single week. Uh, then we also have the Benedictine level and the Dominican level, each with their own rewards. Go take a look over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link. Now we're talking about the Mass all throughout this Easter season because the Eucharist really is the source and the summit of our faith. It's that from which our faith springs and that to which our faith aspires. And so the Mass being the place where we receive the Eucharist and where the Eucharist is consecrated, it makes sense for us to spend this Easter season celebrating the resurrection by looking at the Mass and what impact that has on our lives. So let's go ahead and turn our attention to Scripture and church history today. Our reading comes from tomorrow, from, uh, from Divine Mercy Sunday, and this is from the Gospel of John. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the nail marks, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now a week later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And bring your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you come to believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. That reading comes from the Gospel of John. And two things of note here. First, uh, one of the things that I've been asked before is why do Christians, why do Catholics worship on Sunday? Uh, there are some people who, uh, who claim Christ who continue to worship on Saturday because the Ten Commandments say, remember the Sabbath day, and the Sabbath day, of course, is Saturday. Uh, but Christian tradition and has held from the very beginning that we worship on Sunday. We call it the Lord's Day. We see that in Scripture. And why is that? Well, it's because this is not only the day of resurrection, but this is the day that we see Christ appear to the apostles throughout those 40 days that he's with them. The ones that are recorded we see on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week. And, and so we are commemorating Christ not only rising from the dead, but appearing to his apostles, appearing to those who walked to Emmaus, and then a coming again and appearing the second time and coming to Thomas. The other thing I want to point out here is that when Jesus came and he stood among the disciples, Thomas gets a really bad rap. When Jesus came and appeared among his disciples, they rejoiced when they saw the Lord, right? That, that, that's understandable, but they still didn't get it. Thomas only asked for what the other disciples received. He asked to be shown the same uh, things that they had already received. But when he did see it, when he saw Christ, he didn't just rejoice. He recognized the divinity of Christ and saw him for who he really was and bowed down before him and said, my Lord and my God. How easy it is for us, you and I, to go to the Mass and to rejoice when we see Christ. How hard it is for us to look at the Eucharist and to, to discern the body of Christ and to discern the divinity of Christ and to give God the homage he is due, even in the Eucharist, and to say, my Lord and my God. Our reading from Church History expounds upon that today. It comes from the Jerusalem Catechesis out of the bravery for today. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup, gave thanks, and said, Take, drink, this is my blood. Since Christ himself has declared the bread to be his body, who can have any further doubt? Since he himself has said quite categorically, This is my blood, who would dare to question it and say that it is not his blood? Therefore, it is with complete assurance that we receive the bread and wine as the body and blood of Christ. His body is given to us under the symbol of bread, and his blood is given to us under the symbol of wine, in order to make us, by receiving them, one body and blood with him. Having his body and blood in our members, we become bearers of Christ and sharers, as St. Peter says, in the divine nature. Once, when speaking to the Jews, Christ said, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall have no life in you. This horrified them, and they left him. Not understanding his words in a spiritual way, they thought the Savior wished them to practice cannibalism. Under the Old Covenant, there was showbread. But it came to an end with the Old Dispensation, to which it belonged. 
Under the new covenant, there is bread from heaven and the cup of salvation. These sanctify both soul and body, the bread being adapted to the sanctification of the body, the word to the sanctification of the soul. Do not then regard the Eucharistic elements as ordinary bread and wine. They are, in fact, the body and blood of the Lord, as he himself has declared. Whatever your senses may tell you, be strong in faith. You have been taught and you are firmly convinced that what looks and tastes like bread and wine is not bread and wine, but the body and the blood of Christ. You know also how David referred to this long ago when he sang, Bread gives strength to man's heart and makes his face shine with the oil of gladness. Strengthen your heart, then, by receiving this bread as spiritual bread, and bring joy to the face of your soul. May purity of conscience remove the veil from the face of your soul, so that by contemplating the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, you may be transformed from glory to glory in Christ Jesus our Lord. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That reading comes from the Jerusalem Catechesis. And this is so important for us, specifically in our day and age where we take things very literally and we take things very materialistically, right? We, we trust what we can taste and see and feel and smell and we trust our senses more than we should. We, we look for those things that are empirical. And by doing so, which is not bad in and of, of itself, but in doing so, we can miss the spiritual. Because we look and we taste and we smell the consecrated host and the, the, the chalice. We're like, oh, you know, this, this tastes like bread and it smells like wine and it tastes like wine. Well, true, but something is more than the sum of its parts. I like to use the example of, of money, of paper money. Uh, it's paper and ink, even though it's a special blend of paper, it's still paper and ink, and yet we don't treat it like a post-it note. We give a certain homage to money, and we treat it with a certain reverence because it is money. We don't crumple it up and throw it in the trash when we're done with it. No, we, we take it and we spend it and we benefit from it. In the same sense, that bread and that wine under the power of the Holy Spirit, even though the physical realities are the same, it now has a new identity. It's given that identity just like money when it's printed by the appropriate authority now has a new uh, dimension. It's no longer just paper and ink. We don't treat it like paper and ink. We don't even call it paper and ink. We call it money. And so too, the Eucharist, we don't call it bread and wine. It no longer is bread and wine because its isness has changed. Its identity has changed. And through the body, blood, soul, and divinity, our identity is changed as well. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Carl and Kristen Friend and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and join their numbers. Join me at Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls and Twitter, the handle's at OutsideTheWalls. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.